Welcome to Destination CMO, a podcast about growth, business, and the power of marketing. With your host, Vincent Famvan, a three-time chief marketing officer, member of the Forbes Communication Council, and a 40 Under 40 award recipient. On this show, we invite our guests to share the most important stories happening today in business and tech, told through the lens of a senior marketing leader. If you enjoy this episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest today is Matt Sutton. He's a global performance marketing and brand leader with more than a decade of experience in consumer and business marketing across so many different industries. Matt has used this expertise to help him drive growth for blue chip brands and high growth companies in technology, entertainment, financial services, retail, and so much more in the coming years as well. Matt's an expert in brand marketing, brand planning and architecture, digital marketing, agency management, as well as partnerships. His recent work has been featured in places like CNBC, Shark Tank, USA Today, Adweek, TechCrunch, Entrepreneur, and the New York Times. Matt, such a pleasure to have you here today. Thanks for joining us. Wow, what an intro. Thank you, Vincent. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you know, Matt, like obviously, like as you were growing up as a child, when you when people asked you, you know, what did you want to be when you grew up? It probably wasn't that intro. Like, what was it that you wanted to be if I would have like met five-year-old Matt? Five-year-old Matt was deep in a tub of Legos and wanted to be an architect, um, which I've later found out there's a huge amount of overlap between former architects and people in advertising. Mm-hmm. Go figure. Um, but yeah, it was, it was certainly not um, B2B, B2C growth marketing. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, architect- architecture can go, I guess, almost everywhere. I actually worked for a former architect, and he was actually an, um, an architecture professor um, at one point, too, turned startup CEO and founder. So it's kind of cra- crazy, like, where those careers can go. Like, when you, when you look back throughout your career across so many different brands, what were the things that you wish you would have known at the beginning of your career to kind of, like, set you up for success? Yeah, I mean, I have relatively early in my career, 12, 12 years in, um, but I would say that um, it's okay for somebody to know that the answer to the question, where do you want to be five years from now, is I have no idea. <laughs> um, I have never been able to answer that question. I still couldn't tell you right now, like, where do I want to be in 2028? 20, um, I have no idea. <laughs> um, and I, I, if... if if you can put that out of your mind and focus on, you know, in the next year, what do you ac- want to accomplish and what do you want to learn? It's such a cliche to say, focus on what you want to learn, but it's more like, what do you want to accomplish? Um, then I have, that has given me motivation and driven me and, and kept me excited and, and amped up um, and unlocked opportunities for me. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. I actually, I once had an executive coach tell me, so he actually asked me that question. He said, you know, Vincent, like, where do you want to be in the next five years? And, I, and my answer was, I don't, I don't know. And, you know, he actually almost like lectured me about like, well, how are you going to put together a plan to be able to get there if you don't know where you want to want to be? And, and even to this day, I still fundamentally disagree with the advice that that executive coach gave me because the, uh, Facebook is actually a perfect, a perfect example. You've spent some, uh, some time at Facebook. Like, how would you have predicted 10 years ago, five years ago, the Facebook was going to rebrand to Meta and start building this thing called the metaverse that at the time, you know, nobody had even heard of, or, you know, uh, 10 years ago, like, 
how, how would you have known, hey, I want to study to become a data scientist, which has ended up being one of the best, highest growth, highest paid tech career roles for, in a world where that role doesn't even exist. Totally. I, and, and it's funny, actually, because I have found that the more I tried to plan, the less I am actually, the less I actually make that plan or go towards that plan. An example of that is um, I, I, I went to the uh, undergrad at the University of Virginia, and I went there primarily because I was like, I want to do business. I have no idea what business means, but I want to do business. I want to get into their business school. And I tried and failed twice to get into their, they have the, they had have the number two undergraduate business program in the country. And um, I just, I couldn't memorize accounting rules. So I got C plus and C minus in accounting and I couldn't get in. And I was like, oh, my whole plan has blown up, right? I, I haven't gotten to this. I, I don't know what my future is like. I floundered for a couple of years in college. And then I kind of happened into this course on promotional aspects of marketing. And whereas in, in my econ problem sets, I'd spend two hours pulling teeth. I could spend eight hours in the lab working on a marketing campaign. And I had this aha moment that, that I was like, wait, everything that I've done from extracurriculars to selling ads for the high school newspaper has been marketing. And I don't think, I honestly think had I gotten into that business school, um, that, you know, their primary, they, they produce a lot of really successful folks in finance and consulting, I think I would have gone into consulting and I don't know how long it would have taken me to find my calling that was marketing and advertising. And so because the plan didn't go how I wanted to, I fell into my love for my career. So it, it, I completely agree. <laughs> that You know, that makes like so much sense in terms of you talking about like selling advertisements for high school you know, newspaper, like in, at the same time, while I was in high school, like I was starting, um, a humble little blog back in the early days of, of blogging. And it grew up, it grew into this publication that was getting 2 million monthly visitors. And yet, you know, in my academic pursuits, same thing, I didn't tie those two things together. Like for me, it was just like this hobby and this thing that I was doing and that, you know, I had to grow up and get like a real job you're talking about like rejection. I think that's a lot a big piece about what a lot of people don't talk about as well. You'll really only see like what ends up making the LinkedIn profile when the LinkedIn profile would actually be more interesting if you could actually see like the true view of, of that person's the things that are smoothed over. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, same thing out of high school, I didn't get into actually any of the schools that I applied to. I ended up going to a community college a junior college, but if you look at my LinkedIn profile today, the only thing you would see is I graduated from UCLA, but like the years of like hardship and rejection are to your point, just kind of smoothed, smoothed over. So, you know, it when, also, you, you, I know, you know, this, um, but it makes us better. Like the failure, um, gives you more drive ultimately and makes you sharper and hungrier. It, yeah, completely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and I think you're 100% right. And especially when you fail at, at the traditional academic pursuits, you you definitely know because there's a there's a scorecard for it that you're not the sharpest tool in the shed, that you might not be the smartest person um, in the room. But I think there's a lot to be said about learning agility, grit and perseverance that are the factors that can drive somebody in their career um, and really do end up being the things that a lot of the times that plus a combination of like your relationships and your mentorships 
um, end up being the, the big kind of like pivotal moments in progressing in your career. You, you spent some time at Capital One, like tell me a little bit about what that was like in the financial services world. I spent some, uh, I spent about a year and a half working in financial services at Best Buy with actually Household Bank. And I think now they actually might be a Capital One branded card. I'm not positive about that. Sounds familiar. Yeah, um, potentially. <laughs> but yeah, tell, tell us about kind of that role in financial services and, and marketing financial products. Oh man, Capital One, one of the best companies I've ever worked for, probably ever will work for. I started uh, when I was almost 23 years old and um, I had the fortune of starting in their um, brand management associate program. So at, at the time, Capital One um, is, is was one of the few companies um, that hires people into a brand role from undergrad. And I started in a digital role, essentially taking the, the what's in your wallet campaign with Jennifer Garner and Samuel Jackson and translating, you know, the, the character and the TV assets into short form digital ads, um, which, you know, you have to take a lot of personality and put it into a little bit of real estate. Um, and just such a cool experience. And um, the, that company perhaps more than any I've worked for, like truly invests in its people. And in fact, actually towards the end of my time at Capital One, um, I was there for two years. I was starting to think like, I mostly just wanted to get out and see the world outside of Richmond, Virginia. And and I, I met with their career, they have like a career center and their career center person um, helped me think about my career and think about my resume for Capital One and beyond. So, it, it, I mean, they're, they're truly so invested in people that they, um, you know, helped me think about my career beyond Capital One. Um, and so I, I just had an amazing experience there. And, and also as a marketer, the, the power of scale in performance marketing that Capital One has, they spend hundreds of millions of dollars um, on digital marketing and TV and, and to tweak, I, I mean, I, as, as a nerd, I love this, but I would tweak, you know, 25, 75 character ad copy and see a, see a stat sig um, increase in people applying for credit cards, which is not a, you know, a totally impulse purchase. So you can really see the power of marketing and copy um, in that environment. So I just, I learned an insane amount in two years and loved, loved that company. And that's something that I think a lot of folks like early career should take into account. You know, I, I know a lot of you and I both have spent time at startups and, you know, in the startup world, you kind of have a world where, you know, you, know, you can wear many different hats, you can learn a lot, but then what you definitely don't have is like the structured learning and development programs and kind of like the formality, um, the formality and the depth and the breadth of the talent development programs. You ended up being recruited over to Facebook. Before we do that, I actually did a Google search. The Best Buy card is on Citibank, not Capital ah, Today. I, I know okay. somebody's going to hit me in the comments and, and, <laughs> and put that correction um, in there. But you know what led to you being recruited to Facebook? Yeah, it's, it's a funny story. So when, when I started at Capital One, um, Capital One, like like many companies, were investing in this newish platform, Facebook 
to build communities. So, you know, primary objective likes on the page and, and engagement of their fans um, on the page, um, which is funny to think about in wh where the world is now um, in terms of in terms of organic. But um, so I had, you know, a certain amount of time that I set aside just reading marketing blogs like searchengineland.com and other you know, publications like that. And I read this case study of, I think it was Geico, who was seeing really crazy efficient CPAs for, for acquisition ads on Facebook in this, in this product that was in beta, which was newsfeed ads. And I was like, man, there is something really interesting here. And like, it, it, it just seems like this is a huge opportunity. And so um, I, I partnered with a, a good friend and colleague and we built a business case and pitched up to the president of, um, of card at Capital One is 23 year olds um, investment in in Facebook as a marketing channel, and um, they they bought in on on the pitch, and we we went out and, and contacted Facebook and were like, hey, we um, we want to do this campaign, and so they they taught us how to do it, and we went out and did like a photo shoot at a local business to get you know. Yep. Per, real creative to put a newsfeed as opposed to designed assets. That was like mm -hmm. the main creative direction um, still stands. And, um, and I built that relationship with them um, over, over a year and we launched the ad and it's now a seven figure acquisition channel for capital one. A little while after we launched um, I was starting to think about my next thing and I didn't know anyone that well outside of capital one. I was still so early in my career. I didn't really have a network, but I knew our partner at Facebook mm -hmm. um, and, and he worked across industries. And so I was like, Hey, um, I reached out to him. Um, he's also a good, a good, a good old friend now. And I, I asked him, you know, what, what do you think about this next move? I want to make capital one. And he said, you know, that, that'd be great. Particularly if you want to get your MBA or go to grad school, um, you know, you could, you could maybe go to a different office. Um, but let me throw out a different idea. What if you came and worked at Facebook we have a new part of our marketing department that um, is verticalized and is and focuses on different industry. And we want to lead for financial services marketing that markets to the industry and also consults. And we've seen you do great work. Give it a shot. And I had no concept or idea. Like we would meet with all these cool, crazy tech companies like Google and Yahoo and Microsoft and all them and as as the client and be like, Wow, these are crazy companies. I never had an inkling of an idea, particularly that time that I could work at one of them. And he kind of put it in my ear. And so I interviewed and, and it worked out. And I, I um, had lived in Virginia most of my life. And I picked up and just moved to San Francisco and didn't know anyone. It was, it was great. <laughs> what a crazy story about your accidental entry into tech. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, it's crazy. It's and it, you know, it's, it's a bit of luck and it's also like they had seen my work. So it was like, but ha had I not reached out, it would, you know, to, to get advice, it would never, that door would never have opened. What I love about this story is, and I mentioned earlier, like some of the things that I, that at least for me personally, I think drive careers, um, where, you know, learning agility mindset perseverance. But then one of the things that I threw in was like relationships. 
And, and mm. it's a perfect example of like leveraging a relationship I hear so often from people who are like, you know, how do, how do I go find a mentor? Like, you know, how do I reach out? What do I say to them? And, and more often than not, like the perfect mentor is actually somebody that you're already talking, talking to day to day versus like going out and, and find somebody new. So, you know, what a, what a, what a crazy place to be in Facebook, you know, really during the growth of ads as, as a, product. I mean, the, I think it was 2013 or 14 that you joined there. And really like so much of the machine learning that has gone into it really progressed during those, those years. Like, what were the most interesting components for you of, of marketing something that was like fundamentally new? Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's so interesting. I, at the time, the biggest risk that, that, that Facebook one of the biggest risks, I think, from my perspective that, that Facebook had to deal with was um, the idea of a two-way conversation with customers started with really this this medium. And so, um, and I knew this because this was the, the primary objective that I heard that, that I was dealing with when, when trying to convince Capital One to do this, which is, you know, what if our customers troll these ads? Right. Mm -hmm. Like what if they use it as a customer service channel and, you know, vent their, you know, legitimate concerns, but it's, but it's on this, on this digital billboard for everyone to see. And, um, for, I remember for the first like several years, that was one of the biggest challenges that advertisers had to overcome is a realization that, you know, these comments and things were so new that it, 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 the world won't be on fire if you get a a negative comment on your ads, like, and, you know, so few people click into the comments and things like that. Um, and it was also at the time of um, Instagram. Uh, Instagram was acquired by Facebook that year. And so it was fascinating watching that company, you know, which was a very small company when it was bought, um, be integrated into Facebook and, and the cultural um, changes and also like put, maintaining the special sauce of Instagram um, but having it be a part of the portfolio um, and finding the right balance there um, took years. And in you know, throughout the years, like it's just crazy to think about like looking back. I mean, the number of products that I have, and I'm sure you have also purchased as a direct result of great Instagram story ads um, is unreal. And, you know, it has led to the the growth of, many brands um actually framebridge is another example of a company that like heavily you know the framebridges the the warby parkers the caspers uh of the world all had leveraged this type of advertising to really skyrocket and jump to the forefront of consumer awareness yeah there was this window we all, i always refer i'm sure I'm this, I'm not, this is not original, but there was this window of opportunity um, for small businesses to essentially disrupt every single category. And I loved that because um, I have worked with small businesses since I was like 14 years old. And I, I've just always loved meeting the small business owner and working with them and helping them with whatever you know, you saw this trend in in the 2000s where the big box companies were completely taking over. Like, I mean, market share in, in every category. And um, part of what I loved during this period of working at Facebook is it felt like the the anti big box story almost. It was like 
it was like a, le- a truly a level playing field to give, you know, mom's apple pies access to the same tools as, as Procter and Gamble. I mean, different levels of investment, but like, you know, it gone were, was that um, barrier of, of a, of a billboard or a newspaper ad or a local TV buy. And so um, that was my favorite part of that was, was, was being a part of that and seeing the opportunity that it unlocked. I mean, I feel like it really changed every industry in that way. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, after that, you move to a few different roles, a few different companies, and one of your stops is at FrameBridge. For anybody who's not familiar, you know, FrameBridge, one of my favorite like product ideas. You upload a photo, it shows up framed, and you hang it up uh, in the wall in your house. What a cool, what a cool concept and, and idea. Like, how did you go about approaching being able to sell a service that before that fundamentally just the category didn't exist? Yeah, I mean, you you see so many examples where this brilliant idea literally just came from a poor customer experience that was solved. Um, and then in this case, um, uh, Susan, the founder of, of FrameBridge, you know, she went on a hike and she got four national parks posters for $10 each. And she went to get them framed the way she wanted to get them framed. It was like $1,600. And, and everyone has had that experience where you've taken something you love, some, you know, memory or, or, or something important to you and, and gotten it framed and had the sticker shock and it takes weeks, if not months to frame. And so, you know, her question was, well, why is this this way? And I don't think that anyone had actually ever asked that question for that industry before, or if they had, they hadn't tried to solve it. <laughs> um, and it, and, and it's just, it's just, there, there was a better way there to operate. Thinking about marketing, it was, it, it, in many ways, like a storytelling dream because, um, you know, these are, these are business things. These are frame bridge frames. These are business things that I've, I've framed, but people frame what matters to them. And, and, and I mean, you know, puzzles, wedding photos, pieces of the Berlin wall. Like, I mean, the most amazing stories that are personal and emotive. And so the storytelling from a marketing perspective is, is so rich because, you can tell all these customer stories and inspire other people to frame. Um, so it was, it was such a um, amazing um, brand to to think about how you position and market. And it's you know custom framing is not a sexy category, but the things that people frame are beautiful and amazing. Like it is such a visual story to be able to tell. As you're taking a look at like telling the story. You know, what What I'm really interested in is you're going from this space where it's like performance marketing at its core to being able to tell the story of FrameBridge and to be able to get that out to gain broad consumer adoption. Like tactically, how are you thinking about channels, messaging, content, and like really bringing that to life? Yeah, I've I've been super. Um, while I have not had the five year vision, I've been very intentional about approaching every current and future opportunity with what am I going to learn that I don't currently know. And part of the desire for that is because um, I want to be a full stack marketer. I want to be able to and and have run every ad from a billboard or a direct mail piece to search engine marketing to affiliate marketing in each of those steps 
it was like, okay, what's the next thing that I'm going to learn? And I didn't want to get, you know, too far into one area and become such a specialist that I'm type typecast into one function. But I also don't want to be so high level that I'm a generalist and I don't have subject matter expertise. And so I had five roles in seven years at Facebook and and it, because I wanted new challenges and each of those times I I went through and I was like, okay, I'm ready for the next thing. And I intentionally moved myself further and further from growth and performance marketing, keeping some of that towards brand marketing, reputation mm-hmm. marketing, brand management, because I hadn't done any of that before in in that capacity. And so, yeah, so it was sort of taking a intentional step towards what I didn't know. And, and that makes a lot of sense. You know, it, you know, early marketing, you typically start in one category and you're in growth as an individual contributor. A lot of the times it's like subject matter expertise in one particular space. As you move into um, leadership type roles, it's impossible to be able to have that type of deep subject matter expertise. And so, you know, yeah. the two kind of career paths are either start an agency in that space and like really specialize in that space, mm-hmm. or it's become broad enough where you can, you, you understand the metrics, you understand the strategies, you understand how those strategies fit together and that you're dangerous enough that you're asking the right questions and kind of seeking to understand enough across all of those different spaces. How are you thinking about like the evolving digital and non-digital landscape? You know, like the technology is progressing to the point where, you know, there's companies out there that'll re, you know, they'll retarget you off of a website visit with a postcard. OTT streaming is getting easier and easier to be able to run ads in that space. You know, Spotify has gotten early days, um, programmatic, ad, you know, purchasing where you can place ads into, into podcasts. Like what, what do you think is, is new and exciting and kind of upcoming that you would want to keep your eye on? You think other marketers should keep their eye on? For sure. I, I, I mean, I think there's two things at play um, that are probably always at a play. The first is, is that, you know, there's, there's new um, branding and acquisition channel opportunities that are popping up um, that are extremely exciting. Um, you know, everyone talks about TikTok and, and a lot of the audio formats and like examples to just further examples to reach customers where they are and in a natural way. There's, there's also this, I, I kind of think that everything in life is just a big pendulum. <laughs> and so, um, you know, the pendulum before, before we were marketers was, ex, you know, traditional channels, no, tar- no targeting options, right? Mm-hmm. And then like we, we have grown up as marketers in this era of highly targeted, highly specific marketing that, um, has unlocked so much growth for some brands and has turned out to be snake oil for other brands. Mm. Um, in that, like, if you have a, you know, a global um, worldwide brand or you have a really powerful brand um, message and awareness, um, this idea of sub-segmenting the brand um, dilutes the equity like you subsegment it to a, a specific audience, but you can't ensure that that audience is actually who you're reaching. So you might have a t- you might turn off a, a future customer that would appeal with broader messaging. And so, I think that the pendulum, post iOS 14, frankly, 
um, is, is swinging and just in general, like more focus and awareness of privacy and, and a resistance to personalized ads, which I personally um, would rather have a relevant ad than not, but fine. It's going in that direction. The pendulum swinging back to broader scale media. Um, I, my favorite book that I've ever read in our industry is red marketing um, by uh, Greg Creed, who's the former CEO of young brands. Um, and it talked about a marketer that has, you know, essentially a series of commodities that have to be really well differentiated by marketing. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they believe that the pendulum is swinging back and that brands need to think more about, yeah, they're, um, think, think much more about, um, you know, how they're differentiating their brand across and reinforcing the same or similar message across different channels and, the idea of relevance, balancing relevance, ease, and distinctiveness. But we have this this shift back to less personalized ads. And then um, I also think that whenever we're in the height of a channel, that means we're at the start of the decline of a channel. And so I think the channels that we have been relying on for the past 10 years are quickly going to become secondary to emerging channels, um, whether it's TikTok, um, whether it's more innovation in audio, I, I don't think VR, everyone talks about metaverse and VR. I don't, I, I, I think it's a buzzword and is not going to be relevant for at least 10 to 20 years. AR, I feel like is right around the corner and ads in that are extremely exciting. I would love to deliver an ad to someone who's um, walking down a sidewalk with glasses on that gives them an, an ad for coffee, um, a coffee shop near them. Um the big things that that I take away that I completely agree with you on is diversification of channel is just so key. You know, there are so many companies who put all of their eggs in one primary channel and they did optimize that channel really, really well. And it paid off and it's not everybody, sustainable. Yeah. everybody's talking ROAS and it's not sustainable. And, you know, the crazy thing in this instance, you already alluded to iOS 14.5, you know, is that it wasn't even the player, the channel that made the change. It was another company and and Apple's made it abundantly clear that privacy is going to be the hill that they're going to die on. And Apple or Google, um, although they're not making that stake, they're following, you know, in the same path. And and I agree with you that, you know, the big one of the biggest things that marketers, digital marketers in particular, should be learning, learning and reading up and and processing and understanding right now is this transition to a cookieless world. Because in a in a cookieless world, you know the the copy, the messaging, and the content is going to become so 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 much more important, along with the growth of investing in first party data and really understanding who your customers um, are. And you know it was um, it was good old days when you can launch an ad set and you know do broad broad targeting with an ad and, you know, see the immediate performance of it. But I'm really excited about like this next, this next age and and kind of phase that we're going to go into because um, great storytelling and great content is going to be the thing that delivers brands to be able to go into the next level. And, you know, as far as technology goes, you know, you touch a little bit on metaverse and VR and, and AR and, you know, it's really interesting because, you know, many people think, you know, it's a fad, it's a shiny, a shiny thing. And 
when a when it's applied in the right use case like a pokemon go it gained widespread adoption nearly overnight and you know like like the tamagotchi pets that we all used to play like that that you know hobby is going to pass but you know the thing that stuck with it is like the other day i was i was adding a shirt to or a sweatshirt to my cart on amazon and all of a sudden it's an it's inviting me to create an animoji and then show me what that sweater will look like on me based on my height, mm-hmm. my weight, my body size. And that fundamentally changes how you shop for apparel. And, you know, it's a, it's a really great application of this technology to be able to bring the consumer experience to the next level. I think, I think some skeptics of AR and VR, you know, worry about the consumer adoption curve. And I, I just point to the QR code. That thing had been declared dead in 2015, right? And um, then there was a functional, all of a sudden overnight, there was a functional use case for the QR code that either was necessary or made it way easier. I mean, in the case of COVID, it was necessary to order at restaurants, right? And now overnight, everyone in the world knows how to use, in the, in, you know, the, the developed world knows how to use QR codes. And... Um, there will be a functional use case in AR that makes it take off like fire and it's be, it'll make people's lives easier or it'll unlock something for people a value that they hadn't had. If you would have been able to tell me that I could put a, a unique UTM tracking like onto a QR code on a physical ad like five years ago, I would have, I would have said, you know, that's, that's bonkers. Like that would be so cool or, if you could do that. <laughs> or that the most, that, that the most celebrated Super Bowl ad of 2022 oh, would be yeah. a bouncing <laughs> QR code, right? Like Coinbase. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, you couldn't have predicted that. And, mm-hmm. and, and I think the only way to, to not fall behind of these trends is to just keep experimenting. And like, I, I, um, I am a huge advocate for a sizable double digit proportion of a marketing department's budget to be allocated to new and existing channel testing for that reason. Cause I, I think, I think it's arrogant and incorrect for someone to think that they can stay ahead of the trend. But if you leave testing and optimization to, to experiment, then you might be able to catch what's next. Throughout your career, I mean, you've taken some calculated risks in your career, like moving to San Francisco, that was Facebook, Facebook prior to the Instagram um, acquisition. Like, how do you go about thinking about like those calculated risks in your career? And, you know, what are what have been the, the upsides, downsides of that? Yeah, so um, since undergrad, I have moved across the country twice. So Richmond, Virginia, San Francisco, um, New York, LA, DC, <laughs> um, back to LA, uh, quite a bit of bouncing around and, um, and a, a good amount of risk taking professionally and personally, um, on the professional side, I, I, I was reflecting on this, um, as you were saying it. And, and I think I'm not motivated by money, um, I, I, I want to make, you know, a, a good earning and, and be able to, to live, to live a good life. But, um, I have never made m- making a lot of money as my goal. It's always been, um, what cool companies do I want to work for? Or what cool, amazing people do I want to work for? Who are the coolest leaders and marketers that I know? And I think that 
when I take risks that are associated with those things and not a risk like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to move, I'm going to move to New York because I'm going to get 40% more pay for this job. I think because I've taken risks for those reasons, they have paid off and they've been less risky risks because they're associated with what I, what my values are and what I care about personally. I think had I made the risks be about the money um, or about the title or whatnot, um, it, it's more of a risk of it not working out. Um, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree with you on many senses there. And I've actually even found like my my last few companies, brands, projects, every anything that I'm involved in, that, you know, money is good to the extent that like everybody has basic needs that need to be taken care of. And, you know, anybody who's dug into the research of happiness, there's a really great um, Coursera course um, taught by a Yale professor about um, the science behind happiness and every the body of research shows that that more money makes you happy to an extent and then after you reach that point of money where your basic needs are taken care of and you're not you're really like you're not stressed out and you're not fearful uh, after that incremental money doesn't lead to more happiness and i i found like the thing that gets me excited now is passion work and impact work mm-hmm. and aligning my marketing work with you know projects that are making an impact one of one of the projects that i'm working on that you and i talked about a little bit before we hit record uh on this podcast is is i'm working right now on a on a mobile wireless carrier it's called thrive mobile and they're the first wireless carrier that's focused on making healthcare more accessible and focused on making healthcare easier and so you know these are the types of things now that have kind of led me to drive into um on new projects and brands that I get involved with. And then the complete opposite side of that is like, where am I spending my time? And am I spending my my time, which is something that I feel like I could never have enough uh, of on things that make me happy, keep me connected with those uh, that I love and give me a purpose, you know, on a day to day. What are what are the things like, as we go into the new year and like kicking off the new year, like this year, like what are the things that you're, you're most excited about or curious about and kind of like watching uh, from like a trend perspective? Mm. I think the window, the, the disruptive window of opportunity for TikTok is closing. Um, I also, I don't know what's going to happen with that app um, in general, but I, but I, I do think that there is um, right now in this moment of time next year, a really interesting opportunity um, to experiment and find out what Gen Z reacts to and identifies with and um, appreciates from a marketing perspective. We figured that out with, with millennials, um, with sort of lifestyle targeting, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but Gen Z's don't want to be targeted. <laughs> and so I'm curious, like, what are, you know, I mean, we all have theories. It's, you know, it's aspirational elements of um, life and, and causes and, um, you know, finding ways to connect with them in a way that they feel like they're a part of something. Um, but how that translates into, you know, what kind of content and what kind of ads appeal to them um, is 
is not something that I think most people have figured out and is one that I'm super curious about. And I'm really excited um, coming into this next year um, to do a lot of experimentation. And I think that, um, you know, if, if there is a recession, it will be tempting to remove the experimental side of those budgets. Um, but you, you miss out on a year or two of figuring out what the levers are that move the younger demographic that are, is very quickly going to become the, the power purchasing force. Um, so that's one of the things I'm excited about. Also, um, I, I, we, we talked about earlier, I, th I think, I think there's some version of AR that is just around the corner, like in the next year, um, that is going to be a game changer. And so I'm, I'm just excited to see, um, what the opportunity is there. Cause it'll be, I think it'll, I think eventually it'll render the phone irrelevant. Um, and the phone is, is the whole powerhouse of the past 15 years and, and the next 15 years are going to be the next thing. And so I'm excited about that. Yeah. And I can't wait to, you know, people have been calling for the death of the phone for a while. Like since the days of Google glass, there have been, you know, bullish individuals calling for the death of, of the phone. I, I think it'll be interesting to keep an eye on that too. I agree with you on TikTok. you know, the, to every, every single as new channels get introduced you know the in the early 2000s you could launch a facebook group grow a facebook group and get so much visibility and so many impressions and then of course that moved on and and we have gone through this period where it is possible for somebody and, and not even a brand but for an individual person to grow millions of followers uh on tiktok by consistently posting shorts you know i i think something that's interesting is like when you take a look at consumer search moving to Amazon and moving and, you know, currently still present in Google, uh, Google starting to display YouTube shorts in search results completely changes like the approach that marketers have taken the past five, 10 years of putting out blog posts. Um, and, you know, if YouTube shorts are showing up in search results, that's a lot of eyeballs um, on high intent uh, searches. And I'm still not sure what to think of be real yet. And this is how mm -hmm. I know that I'm like a millennial and, and like no longer on the cutting edge of technology is that like, I still have not downloaded be real. Like I know it's a thing, but I just don't know what to think of it yet. <laughs> I I'm so on the fence as to whether this is um, another house party or whether it's going to be, a thing because it feels very similar because you know over the past eight years since I started at um, eight nine years since I started at at, at Facebook um, Instagram I've seen like three or four of these things pop up and get large scale adoption at, for, but then the behavior dies out because it's it's a Clubhouse um, is a perfect example of that Clubhouse yeah although I don't I never really got that concept frankly but and what 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 is consistent about what i what to me what has failed is it's a forced user behavior every time so um you know i, I if i remember correctly clubhouse started with a you know you you join into essentially like a live podcast kind of thing mm -hmm. um and house party um people are online at the same time and so it takes people out of their environment at certain points in time and kind of forces a behavior. Be real is the same thing. You have to react 
in the moment at the same moment every day. And, and that's fun and interesting, but I wonder if, if the consumer will tire of a forced, it's almost like a chore. It, right now it's fun, but it could become a chore. Um, but I don't know. People love it and people are having a lot of fun with it. And um, I, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm a little skeptical of, of these things that pop up every once in a while. But then again, you know, Snapchat and TikTok popped up. <laughs> um, so we'll see. I mean, it's full circle from what you talked about with your time at Capital One, right? Like authenticity over polish. Um, and I think Be Real, the one thing that's clear, whether Be Real turns into a marketing channel or whether it continues to be just a way to share with your family and friends what you're doing, mostly your friends, what you're doing, um, is that authenticity ends up being key, which tells me that the trend for UGC user-generated content is for here to stay and that I actually think that there will be an evolution of affiliate marketing and that today when you think about affiliate marketing with quote unquote influencers or you know folks with large blog audiences or YouTube audiences um, and those really being like monetization for full-time content creators I see yeah. a world where loyalty programs shift into affiliate programs and we see the everyday consumer um becoming affiliates and for that to be kind of skinned as a loyalty program for a brand interesting i wonder too if um it's it's the consumer and it's also adjacent brands like i i, I saw um uh delta just had a partnership with starbucks mm -hmm. where um, they're getting points as a part of their loyalty program. And so it's like, it's, it's sort of this becomes a shared experience of like a consumer, their relationship with the brand and the relationship with like brands that they all identify with and enjoy. Yeah, I, that's a, that's an interesting point. So Matt, it's been a pleasure to chat with you. You know, one last question for you, like what are the resources throughout your career that have really helped you grow as a marketer? I will say to answer your question, other people and other marketers. I owe everything that I have to people that are way smarter than me with much more experience giving me really good advice, whether it's advice on decisions, advice on career. Uh, my first manager um, in my career, Ann Stroud, made me write, made me go to version 12 of my first creative brief before she approved it. That made, that, that is the re the reason why I have a good eye for creative. Literally it's, it's, it's her, her guidance. Um, so yeah, just, just finding mentors and finding people. Um, I've, I've met people on LinkedIn too, um, that, that you can get along with and you can bounce ideas off of. Um, I, I'm, I, I don't think, I think we're all as good as the tools we have and, you know, what we have up to this point won't get us to the next point without the help of other smart, amazing people. And for folks who want to follow what you're doing or stay connected with you, where's the best place to do that? LinkedIn for sure. Um, I'm, I'm not really on Twitter actually. Um, but, uh, yeah, LinkedIn and, um, I'm, I'm pretty responsive there. Awesome. We have your LinkedIn URL up on the screen, Matt. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, Vincent. Such a pleasure. This has been destination CMO hosted by Vincent Famfan. Because marketing careers are often highly specialized and rarely linear, 
Destination CMO invites senior marketers to share stories and insights from their professional journey. If you liked this episode, join the community by following us on social media. We have links to all our platforms in the show notes. And join us next time for the most important stories in business and tech, explained through the lens of a senior marketer. Thanks for listening to Destination CMO. This podcast is produced by Caroline Pickens and the team at Fresh Picked Studio. For more information, go to freshpickedstudio.com.